Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, we take a look at the Kerner Report, commissioned by then-President Lyndon Johnson in 1967. Now, it was supposed to dissect why blacks during the mid to late 1960s were rioting in cities throughout the nation. We need to know the answer, I think, to three basic questions about these riots. What happened? Why did it happen? What can be done to prevent it from happening again and again? Instead, the report revealed it was systemic racism at the core. Historian and scholar Dr. Jelani Cobb contextualizes the Kerner Report with a new edition and an introduction and how it's still relevant. Also this hour, it's 86,000 acres of nature. No, it's not in Atlanta, but Georgia state parks are open despite an increase in coronavirus cases due to the Delta variant. So we'll talk about where you could enjoy these parks. All that's on today's program. But first this, speaking of the pandemic, Atlanta area school districts are reporting hundreds of COVID-19 cases as students are heading back into their second week of school. Now, many Atlanta students are already back in school, but not all districts are requiring masks. Gwinnett County does require masks. Still, the district reports more than a dozen staffers and close to 200 students have tested positive for the coronavirus. DeKalb schools also require masks and close to 100 staff and more than 100 students have COVID cases reported. In Cobb County, masks are optional but encouraged and there are nearly 200 total cases there. Now, students and staff identified through contact tracing in Cobb who are asymptomatic are allowed to return to class but they do have to wear masks, and masks will be required in nearly all schools within Fulton County as classes get underway today. In other news, Georgia State Senator Burt Jones has filed paperwork to enter the GOP primary for lieutenant governor. He's a resident of Jackson and an insurance executive in his family's company. Jones has been vocally has vocally disputed the results of Georgia's 2020 presidential election. He was among the lawmakers who called for a special legislative session to overturn the election's results. And finally, former Georgia Tech and NFL outstanding wide receiver Calvin Johnson is now a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. His nickname is Megatron. Johnson was inducted this weekend. In his acceptance speech, Johnson thanked the Detroit Lions organization and fans. He played nine seasons for the Lions. And he also acknowledged several from his high school playing days to college. Rodney Walker, my high school head coach at Sandy Creek High School, You saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. You spoke confidence into me and solidified my parents' teaching by emphasizing the same principles. Derek Moore, my team chaplain for Georgia Tech and spiritual mentor, 
It was my spiritual stability that you helped me discover while in college that became key for me in life. Your energy is contagious, and I'm grateful to call you a friend. Thank you. And my Georgia Tech wide receiver coach, you taught me there are two things you can always control in this life, your attitude and your effort. Uh, congratulations and well-deserved to Calvin Johnson. Closer Look returns in just a moment. And you're tuned to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice Friend PR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Does history repeat itself? Of course it does. You'll learn more in just a moment as we discuss in this next segment. And before we welcome our guest, professor and historian and scholar Jelani Cobb, we're going to go back to July 23rd, 1967, Detroit, Michigan, sometime before daybreak. Detroit police raided what was cited as an illegal nightclub in a predominantly black part of the city. Now, it's always been reported people were gathering to welcome home two Vietnam soldiers. As officers began making arrests, confrontations also escalated, and soon Detroit had erupted. The clashes were with the Detroit police, state police, and the National Guard, and all called in by Michigan's governor at the time, George Romney. At the request of Mayor Kavanaugh, we've made state police and National Guardsmen available to assist in uh, dealing with what is a case of lawlessness and uh, hoodlumism and to protect the persons and property of uh, people in the areas involved. Now, Governor Romney called his actions an emergency proclamation and not to martial law. And over five days, reports cited 43 were killed, more than 1,100 injured, and 7,200-plus arrested. Businesses, including hundreds of stores, were burned. Looting also took place. In fact, though, Detroit was among several cities in the summer of 1967 and prior years where black Americans took to the streets and took out frustrations. Now, here's President Lyndon Johnson on July 24th in 1967. Law and order have broken down in Detroit, Michigan. Pillage, looting, murder, and arson have nothing to do with civil rights. But soon after, on July 27th, President Johnson addressed the nation regarding Detroit and the prior years of civil unrest, and he said he was appointing a commission. The commission will investigate the origins of the recent disorders in our cities. It will make recommendations to me, to the Congress, to the state governors, and to the mayors for measures to prevent or contain such disasters in the future. The findings, called the Colonel Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, that's what it was called, and recently noted historian, author, and Professor Jelani Cobb co-authored a new edition of this with an introduction, the Essential Colonel Commission Report, published just weeks ago. This edition includes insight and analysis from Professor Cobb that is just as relevant as today as it was some 50-plus years later. As a staff writer at the New Yorker, Jelani Cobb is also the IRA Lipman Professor of Journalism at the Columbia Journalism School, and he joins me now. Professor Cobb, it's been some time. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Are you with me? Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. It's been some years, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, once upon a time, I would get back to Atlanta regularly, but, you know, for obvious reasons, that hasn't been the case yeah. of late. Let's begin here, and for our listeners, so they can fully understand what the racial climate of the nation was prior to Detroit, because there was a lot taking place. And Mm -hmm. if you can, paint this picture for our listeners. 
So, I mean, the report looked at, you know, what they called in, you know, antiseptic language, you know, civil disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, other people call them riots, uprisings, rebellions. There was a whole uh, vocabulary of, of terminology for it. Uh, but what you were seeing, you know, was social upheaval. And, you know, it, it had begun really, uh, I mean, if you, to the extent you could say it stopped, uh, in 1964, you know, where there was a riot in Harlem uh, and Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And that was almost forgotten because the following year, there was the Titanic uh, uprising that you saw in Watts, mm-hmm. uh, which was the largest uh, in history up to that point. Also a result of police use, an incident of police use of force. Uh, and, you know, what put this up in, in LBJ's mind as a social crisis, you know, was the fact that uh, the Watts uprising happened just five days after he signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law, um, which was one of the more audacious and significant uh, achievements in terms of civil rights legislation. And then just five days later, uh, you know, this whole section of Los Angeles is on fire. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when you get to 1967, he recognizes that this is something that that has to be understood in a more profound and more analytical way. And although in that clip I played with Governor George Romney, who would sort of kind of dismissed this being frustrations out of something larger than just folks taking the opportunity to riot or, or loot. Um, these frust- these frust- uh, frustrations grew out of a lot that was taking place. You mentioned uh, issues, obviously, with policing, uh, discrimination. There oh, sure. Was, all of this. T- there was a lot going on. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that was important, and I'll come back to, to George Romney in a minute, because he's a really intriguing figure uh, in terms of, of how he comes around on these questions. But one of the first things that becomes apparent, you know, when people look at this, uh, even before the Kerner Commission, but is certainly when the Kerner Commission report came out, was that people tended to look at these things as being reactions to the police. And you really couldn't understand it that way. You know, the, one of the significant achievements of the Kerner report was to say, indisputably, this is about unemployment. It is about a poor educational system. Mm-hmm. This is about uh, absence of healthcare or poor quality of healthcare. This is really significantly about housing. Uh, This is about media. They went into a comprehensive examination of the ways that institutions had failed Black America. Mm -hmm. And what we were seeing was a reaction to that. I'm going to get into a clip from uh, President Johnson in just a moment, but I want you to follow Mm -hmm. up with uh, Governor George Romney. What kind of governor was he? So Romney was an interesting figure. First off, he was a Republican of a sort that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he ran for president in 1968, you know, after this. Uh, you know, he was a fairly moderate figure, you know, politically. Uh, ran for president in 1968, obviously did not get the nomination, Richard Nixon did. Uh, but he came on as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And it was in that context, Nicole Hannah-Jones has a really great article about this, um, if anyone wants to, to Google it. But, but George Romney essentially destroyed his career uh, because he became such a fierce advocate for equal housing for Black people. Hmm. Uh, by the time you know, the first term was, was over, 
Uh, he was alienated. Uh, people thought that he was uh, kind of the odd man out in the administration. Uh, Nixon was getting all kinds of complaints from other Republicans. Uh, you know, what is it with Romney and this fair housing stuff? Because, you know, there was such a huge amount of discrimination in housing and the government had it had taken a lackadaisical approach to addressing it if it if not for the instances where the government actually exacerbated the mm -hmm. problem uh, and romney was uh, really a, an interesting figure in trying to address that you know president johnson as he cited earlier immediately he said the riots were not actions of civil rights but then professor cobb just days later when he announced his commission take a listen to what he said the only genuine long-range solution for what has happened lies in an attack mounted at every level upon the conditions that breed despair and breed violence. All of us, I think, know what those conditions are. Ignorance, discrimination, slums, poverty, disease, not enough jobs. And we should attack these conditions not because we are frightened by conflict, but because we are fired by conscience. We should attack them because there is simply no other way to achieve a decent and orderly society in America. So, Professor Cobb, let's talk about President Johnson for a moment. He knew these riots in the urban cities were not just of, of lawlessness and folks just wanting to to loot. He mm -hmm. knew that there were these underlying societal issues here. Mm -hmm. How That night when he's addressing the nation and he talks about this commission, through you as an historian, you, you knew he recognized what was going to come out of this, but this was a way for the rest of the nation to know it wasn't just something he would be saying because, oh, it's just President Johnson again here saying something that isn't true as it relates to black Americans. Well, sure. But, but really, the, the interesting thing about the Kerner Commission report is that it got away from from LBJ. You know, they went further uh, than even he was willing. And I think he was thinking about the limits of his political mandate, you know, just how far uh, could they go in making this argument before they began to alienate white voters. And if there was any question about that, they they got the results in November of that year, mm -hmm. you know, when Richard Nixon's uh, Southern strategy and, and law and order campaign, you know, drove him to the White House. Uh, and so uh, he, LBJ is thinking about these things, uh, but he increasingly gets worried that the commission is going too far. Uh, and so when we think about you know, what the report said, and this report was sprawling, like 900 pages mm -hmm. uh, or so. Uh, if you if people know the report, they likely know uh, two things from the summary. Uh, the first was in saying that the society was, that the United States was headed toward two different societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal, mm -hmm. you know, using the language from Brown versus Board of Education. The other is that they say that white America is complicit in the creation of the ghetto. They said black people know this, white people choose not to, but, but the Negro can never forget it, that it, it has maintained it, has condoned it, and it, it operates at their prerogatives and something to that effect. And so um, that would be hard for any politician to 
to find palatable. Mm -hmm. uh, but the rest of the report is 900 pages of the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, even LBJ, by the time it came out, was was really uh, concerned that they had gone farther than the mandate that he'd given them. And we're going to continue that in just a moment. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with historian, author, and Professor Jelani Cobb, who's co-authored the introduction, The Essential Kerner Commission Report. And we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. I'm joined by New Yorker, staff writer, historian, scholar, all-around good guy, Jelani Cobb. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, Jelani. I might get in trouble. And we're talking about the 1968 Kerner Report commissioned by President Lyndon Johnson. You know, you got ahead of me because in, in my next question, we were talking about this, the summary of the report, and you, you, you quoted this because from that report it says, quote, this is our basic conclusion our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And something else that was very interesting that came out of that that stood out to me was that it also says, quote, it is time to make good the promises of American democracy to all our citizens, urban and rural, white and black, Spanish surname, American Indian and every minority group. So mm -hmm. one could say this was in a the, the government's own CRT <laughs> document before <laughs> if you really want to get technical about it right i mean come on yeah i mean i think that it's interesting um you know in some way a lot of ways crt came about as a result of um you know that movement came about as a result of people failing to adhere to things like the kerner report um and what it was trying to say you know what, one of the things i think that was also notable about this was that uh you know, 20 years before this, uh, there had been a, a massive book called American Dilemma, mm. which, uh, you know, was done by the Swedish uh, sociologist Gunnar, Gunnar Myrdal. It was an examination of race uh, in America, exhaustive, you know, huge um, undertaking. And one of the things that it did was kind of create a template for the liberal agenda of, you know, the post-war world as it related to race. You know, so there were reforms that had begun, you know, even before the kind of formal acknowledgement of what we think of as the civil rights movement uh, or the most modern incarnation of it. But, uh, you know, they wanted something like that. This is why they wrote this gigantic report. Mm -hmm. I mean, the commission could have written a 100 page summary and, and given it to LBJ. Uh, instead, they wrote this 900 page behemoth uh, and they were trying to create a rationale for the further enfranchisement uh, of Black people in American society. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those tragic missed opportunities mm -hmm. that the commission reports 
findings and its recommendations, but have never really to this day been taken seriously. And that was my next question. You spent all this time putting together mm-hmm. this massive report, and then that was my next question. So then what happened? Well, LBJ shelved it, uh, essentially. Um, and you know, people have talked a great deal about how he, he more or less pretended that the report didn't exist. Um, but this report came out at a curious moment. It came out in March 1968, mm-hmm. and it's about uh, civil disorders. But March 1968 is not when civil disorders really blow up. Mm-hmm. It's a month later. Uh, and the timeline of this is that it sends this book uh, through the ceiling in terms of people buying it and going out. I mean, it had already been popular, uh, but the fact that Martin Luther King dies a month later, less than a month later, um, and America erupts. You know, the cities are on fire across the country. Uh, and all of a sudden, these recommendations and these warnings issued in the Kerner Report are all the more pressing. Uh, but the political moment moves in a completely different direction. Mm. Not only does LBJ uh, ignore it, uh, but you know, Richard Nixon comes into power and essentially says what these people need uh, is a strong dose of law and order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sets the template. I talk about this in the introduction mm-hmm. to the book. You know, we we go through decades in which liberalism is essentially in retreat. Uh, and Kerner is almost the last gasp of that kind of idea, ideal. A missed opportunity for the government to really make a difference for the missed opportunity for yeah. American society, for right, yeah. to actually live up to its ideals. You know, it's it's all of the above. Now let's fast forward to last summer. Yeah. Obviously 2020 mm-hmm. and the protests, obviously after the killing of George Floyd and so much that's happened. And you you you're you're making a connection here because mm-hmm. here we are fifty some years later. And it's 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 a, it's same. It's the same optics around what's taking place. But are we seeing the actual outcomes be a little bit different now, Jelani? Possibly. Yeah. You know, possibly. We have to have the kind of cautious optimism. You know, but you know, what happened when um you know when the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's death is that people started looking at the things that Kerner had pointed to. And you saw that disparity in unemployment between black and white in Minneapolis being one of the most severe disparities in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you saw that not only was George Floyd unemployed, but he suffered from COVID-19, which is something else that was disproportionately impacting black America. It was almost a paint by the numbers uh, illustration of the things that Kerner, the Kerner Commission report had tried to warn about. Um, but we do see some signs of maybe possibly making some differences. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any changes that we'll make in the society, especially as it relates to policing in particular, um, will be slow and painstaking and will require a great deal of um, commitment over time because we have almost 18,000 police departments in this country. You can't reform all of them at once. Uh, But there is something to be said, you know, for these questions about defunding the police or these questions about uh, creating alternate structures about the legislation that uh, seems to not be doing faring too well in the Senate, um, the George Floyd Reform and Policing Act. Um, but, you know, we are seeing on the local level 
um, initiatives from you know more progressive prosecutors and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, and so I think that we have to be mindful that this problem is terrible. It's, it seems intractable, uh, but we hold on to the areas where we do seem it, where it does seem possible to make some progress. And I want to get your thoughts on how the pandemic, how COVID nineteen, is also a, a critical point in this as well. Because I've had so many conversations about this, and, and our listeners probably get sick of me saying this, but so many people saying, "Oh, well, all these." ills and, and all these disparities and inequities have been amplified or exasperated by COVID-19 and now we really need to do something. Uh, your take on, on what COVID-19 will, I guess in the, in the end when history writes itself, will we then also see some of these inequities and disparities really truly addressed because not only just what happened with the protests last year and then that last year was a polarizing presidential election year and all that, but we had a pandemic, man. Yeah, so, you know, the thing that I find interesting about this um, is that when we look at the argument that COVID-19 presented, you know, what it really did, first off, it stripped away all the euphemisms. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about all these things in American society and so on. Straight out, you know, we saw who lived and who was dying. And we saw who was disproportionately being impacted by it. You know, uh, Blacks and Latinos being infected at double and triple the rate, dying at double and triple the rate. Uh, When we looked at what we saw as essential labor, uh, these were people who were generally underpaid and people not in a position to get out of the way of the virus. Uh, We don't think twice about supermarket work, you know, or clerks, but literally um, that typically young woman typically young women of color uh, who got up at 5 a.m. and went in to make sure someone could check out uh, and get groceries was saving people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so what COVID-19 did was present us a brief for a new movement to enfranchise the rights of working people in this country. And we've seen this conversation, you know, obviously in the 2016, 2020 elections uh, and questions about where we would go politically. Um, But this has been right in front of us Uh, in the same way that I think that it's not the same as the explosive nature of an uprising or civil disorder, as they called it. Um, But the the case is no less clear for us to understand. Professor, what prompted you to not only just sort of reintroduce this Kerner report as it also reflects our modern times here, but in looking at this 900-page document, which could have done so much but didn't, as you mentioned, President Johnson basically shelved it. What led you to do this? You know, I was talking with my editor about it, and you know, we were having this conversation in the midst of everything that was happening last year and saying, you know, what could we do? Like, what do people need to read? Like, what kind of resources, um, you know, would be available? And we thought, like, Kerner. Uh, and we went through that 900-page report. We were trying to get it down to about 300 pages. Um, to just get the essential parts of it, the parts that that endure from 1968 to 2020, then mm-hmm. 2021 now. Uh, and we got down to about 330 pages and saying, like, this is the most distilled version of this. And you can take a look at it um, and understand, you know, what people have been trying to tell us for so long. Who should read this? I'm sorry? Who should read this? Oh, anyone who's concerned about the well-being of democracy, anyone who's concerned about us breaking the cycle of repeating, you know, these kinds of dynamics, uh, you know, anyone who cares 
basically. What's next for you? You always write, and my producer uh, Daniel was very excited because he. <laughs> uh, and in a in a very little while, I have a piece coming out in the New Yorker on Derek Bell and the origins of critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, the title of the piece is "The Man Behind Critical Race Theory," and you know, Mr. Bell, for people who knew him or, or did not know him, uh, was an amazing person, and it was his relentless work as a civil rights advocate and having literally risked his life to file mm-hmm. desegregation suits in 1962, 1963 in Mississippi, uh, and then trying to understand why the civil rights movement did not generate equality in the United States. And that was what led him to the, the, the questions that became foundational to critical mm-hmm. race theory. Uh, and so that is uh, gonna be coming out in the New Yorker very soon, if not next week, then the week after that. Um, and I have another book, an anthology of writing about race from the New Yorker called mm-hmm. The Matter of Black Lives that I co-edited with David Remnick. And so that will be out at the end of this month too. Now we oh, can... wait, wait, one Uh-oh. other thing. Go ahead, telling yeah, you. get it. Let this out. Obama in pursuit of a more perfect union, um, a documentary series, which I was fortunate to serve as an executive producer on that aired on HBO last week. It's mm-hmm. still available on the on demand. It's a three part um, documentary. So take a look at that, too. When are you coming back to Atlanta? <laughs> I, I want to get back down there because, you know, you all know, I, I taught at Spelman for yeah. 12 years. You know, Atlanta was like my second home. Um, I still have a lot of people who I love down there, people who I'm like close to. Uh, you know, I won't get you in trouble by shouting out specific establishments, you know. Um, but, <laughs> it's okay. but, you know, my people at Moods Music. But, um, but yeah, I'm sure so, Daryl appreciates that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and so I, I want to get back down there as soon as possible. Staff writer at the New Yorker, Jelani Cobb. He's also the IRA Lippman Professor of Journalism at the Columbia Journalism School. And just a, I know I said you're all around a good guy, and perhaps I'm not supposed to say that, but you know we've enjoyed so many conversations over the years when you were down here, and Thank now you know moved on up like George and Wheezy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but always have a place in my heart for Atlanta. It's called the it's excuse me it's called the Essential Kerner Report, um, and it is available. You can check it out online somewhere. Thank you so much, Jelani Khan, for taking the time and, and helping us revisit this part of our our nation's history and, and contextualizing it for a new generation and for those who probably didn't know much about it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, you take care. Take care now. continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Some breaking news as the Associated Press is reporting the Pentagon will require members of the U.S. military to get the COVID-19 vaccine and they've given them a date by September 15th. This is according to a memo that was obtained by the Associated Press. Again, the breaking news, the Pentagon apparently will require members of the U.S. military to get the COVID-19 vaccine by September 15th. Speaking of also big years, big news, rather, it's a big year for Georgia State Parks and historic sites. Why, you may say, well, 90 years ago, I was not alive. Back in 1931, Georgia State Parks Division was born with two parks, just two, Indian Springs and Vogel. 
You'll find out how many there are now in just a moment. And if there's anyone who can tell us about Georgia State Parks, it's Kim Hatcher, Public Affairs Coordinator for the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Kim, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. You weren't around 1931 either, so. No. (laughs) But it is a big year. Happy 90. Thank you. Thank you. We're excited. We, we, um, I think everybody in Georgia is very fortunate to have such a great state park system. Well, now they are, <laughs> considering what we've been going through. Let's back up for a moment for our listeners. Uh, can you give us an idea just how many state parks or historic sites we have now? Because I know we have more than two. Yes. <laughs> so we're part of the Department of Natural Resources, and there are 64 state parks and state historic sites. Um, We cover more than 84,000 acres, which means it's really easy to get outside and find your own space to enjoy nature, which has been really important these past year and a half. Well, let's go back because as things were shutting down last year and folks were looking for things to do, I imagine you all saw uh, an increase in folks just wanting to get out and hit the state parks. But you also had to have some concerns with with COVID-19 as well. Yeah, we we definitely knew that people needed to get outside. You know, it's not just good for your body, but it's good for your mental health, good for your soul to be out in nature. So the state parks did stay open. And um, yeah, last year was quite, quite busy. It was unprecedented for for our park rangers. This year is definitely a little more calm, but but we're still welcoming people. And, and we're, you know, safety is definitely a priority, keeping not just our park rangers safe, but of course the visitors safe. Um, so it, the good thing about parks is that it's easy to social distance. Well, let me ask you this, Kim, because you saw an increase in folks visiting, which is what you all wanted. But I'm also curious, did it also mean in terms of the staff having to work a little bit extra in terms of just maintenance? And, you know, for those folks who left their trash behind, you know who you are. Folks like that. And then making sure folks weren't just setting fires anywhere because you know who you are. Some of y'all did that. Um, Did y'all have to put in a little bit extra time, overtime as well? Uh, That is, that's almost normal within the park system. You know, when you work in a state park, you you do it. It's a labor of love. Um, So, yeah, we, we did have people working really hard. And we also have fantastic volunteers who help us out as well. Let's get into, uh, because I know even though the kids are back in school, there are some activities that are, you all have planned, some special activities because it is a, a big year. It's 90 years. Or you all have some special weekends coming up at the Georgia State Parks. Yeah, we always have something going on all across Georgia. Lots of guided hikes, kids activities, things like that. I'm really excited because right now we're in the middle of the Perseid meteor shower. And the peak is supposed to be Thursday night. Um, I'm crossing fingers that weather cooperates because um, people have an opportunity to go out with a park ranger and paddle to the middle of the lake at Hard Labor Creek State Park, which is in Rutledge. So it's pretty close to to Atlantis, just out, you know, I-20 East, Mm -hmm. um, which would be a fantastic way to experience this meteor shower. And there's supposed to be very little moonlight, too. And it's a dark park. So um, we're really hoping for clear skies. Um, if you're more into Native American history, mm-hmm. uh, you could take a tour at New Echota, which was the Cherokee capital in the 1820s, 1830s. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just north of Atlanta. It's in Calhoun. And um, now you can, well, you, normally you tour on your own, but this Saturday they're having guided tours where you can see several reconstructed and original buildings, um, like the printing press, um, that, that it's a working printing press from that time period, a courthouse, a tavern, a missionary home. So it's a really interesting guided tour. 
What about uh, here? Because obviously we're in, we're located in the Atlanta area, and when we think of state parks, people probably think, uh, "What state parks are closest to the city of Atlanta?" Well, we have several that are within an hour or two. So none of the state parks are in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and but what's really nice is within thirty minutes, in some cases, you can feel like you're really out in nature. Um, one of my favorites to tell people about is Chattahoochee Bend, which is near Noonan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on the Chattahoochee River. It's one of Georgia's newest state parks. It's definitely lesser known, so it's easy to find some quiet space. They have lots of hiking trails and biking trails. It's actually a good place to take kids because it's fairly easy and the trails are pretty flat. And there's even an observation tower that they can climb up in and get kind of a, a bird's eye view up in the treetops. Um, my favorite trail there is a rock outcrop trail because it has pretty wildflowers. And um, usually there are reflection pools of water on top of the granite surface. So it makes for great nature photography with the clouds reflecting in that water. And Kim, I'm curious because there was so much funding that came out of Washington, whether it was the CARES Act or then or the latest, the, the American Rescue Plan here. So were you all able to get some extra funding for state parks and historic sites? You know what? I am not sure of all of the funding sources that are coming coming in within the parks. Um, we we definitely have been putting a lot of effort into upgrading cabins and campsites and trails and things like that. So so people will definitely see some improvements within the parks. I have a question here from a listener who wants to know because I mentioned the campfires. Is it were, were you joking about the campfires, Rose? Or are we allowed to build campfires in state parks? Is a good question. Are they? Oh, well, yeah, well, we have cabins and campsites that that all have their own camp, their fire ring. So, yeah, you're welcome to build a campfire, make some s'mores. In the fire ring. Don't just go create your own. (laughs) In the fire ring. No, we do. We do not want fires outside in in the parks that uncontrolled. No. (laughs) (laughs) I love our listeners. They pay so much attention. Uh, You (laughs) mentioned um, the the main attractions and some of the features that are taking place um, because of the 90 years. Uh, How do you see the state, not just here of of Georgia State Parks, but our, our, our national landscape of state parks? Because there was a time when there was some concerns about upkeep and some concerns about infrastructure and development and how all that would would balance itself out how do you how would you assess our nation's landscape as it relates to our state parks and historic sites well i think one thing this past year taught us is how important parks are to communities how important they are to 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 people all walks of life life all ages um and, and the nice thing about the state park system is there's such a variety of things to do from biking and fishing and archery, geocaching, dog walking, so many activities that you can find um, pretty close to home. And I think this just shows that this is what people want and, and that that funding is important for the parks. Um, you know, it's it's very inexpensive to visit when, when mm-hmm. you come for the day. It's only five dollars to park and you can put the whole family in the minivan and go and enjoy <laughs> most everything uh, for no extra fee. And uh, and I think people are happy to support the parks by doing that. And, and we even have a Friends of Georgia State Parks and Historic Sites organization where mm-hmm. when you join, you get an annual pass and you get some other uh, benefits. And, and I think a lot of people join that just to say, hey, I support my Georgia State Parks. I have another uh, question from a listener that wants to talk more about the Rose, please talk about the historic sites. Our listeners, they're just they're so demanding, but I love them. Uh, <laughs> when we talk about our historic sites, uh, what do you want to recommend to people to check out? particularly that's kind of close to Atlanta. Yeah, 
sure. Um, if you're into presidential history, American history, we've got Effie Roosevelt's Little White House, which is in Warm Springs, mm-hmm. so not too far. Um, this was where he he had polio and he came to Warm Springs to seek therapy mm-hmm. in the pools and the, the warm water there. So he built a vacation home. Um, he actually suffered a stroke, a fatal stroke, while posing for a painting, a portrait at the Little White House. Um, the home is left exactly the way it was the day he passed away. And that painting is on display in their museum. Um, They just recently, within the past few months, added some of the sketches that the artist did in preparation for that. Mm -hmm. What I think is really interesting is just the historical significance of this painting. Here was the most powerful man in the world posing for this painting when when he, he left us. Um, and, and there's a lot to see down there. He has hand-controlled cars in the museum because, you know, he couldn't use his legs. So he, he wanted to take joy rides in the Pine Mountain Valley. So he had these beautiful hand-controlled cars that you can see. All right. What other historic sites are you going to recommend? Um, let's see. Etowah Indian Mounds, which is in Cartersville, is a great place to, you know, step back, you know, more than a thousand years ago, there, mm-hmm. there was this um, thriving culture in the Etowah Valley that lived along the Etowah River. And today there are several earthen mounds that are still there. You can climb to the top of the tallest one. I think it's like 53, 60 feet high and look out over the the field now and imagine what it was like then. Um, there's a great museum that has artifacts that had been found at that site. Um, it, it, and what's kind of interesting is you could go to Etowah Indian Mounds and then continue up and go to New Echota uh, because they're both in northwest Georgia. You can mm-hmm. easily access them from I-75 and, and get, I mean, they're completely different cultures, um, but, but looking back at Native American history. And Kim, as we get into the fall, I mean, we're still in summer, but as we get into the fall, do you see a decrease in folks visiting Georgia's uh, state parks? Oh, no. <laughs> October, come October 1, that's when everybody wants to go leaf watching. Um, and and I, I like to remind people that it's not just October. We often see peak color in North Georgia in November. Um, if you can come during the week, I highly recommend that because we're going to be very busy on the weekends. And if you want a cabin, if you want a yurt or a campsite, go ahead and reserve now. You could even reserve for next fall because they do book up on the weekends. All this just for leaf watching. Cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then finally, a question here. What options are available if folks want to plan a longer trip outside of the city? Well, they want to spend maybe more than just a weekend and they want to bring all the kids in a minivan, as you pointed out. (laughs) (laughs) I tell everybody that on your bucket list should be the Okefenokee Swamp. Now, wait a minute. Now, Kim, now I've had this conversation. There are gators (laughs) in Okefenokee. Why are you telling people to go down there where there are gators? You're the second person related to the Georgia State Parks. Or, but I, full disclaimer, folks, I'm not telling you to go down there because there are gators. But Kim, continue. I just think it's it's fascinating. We've got the largest blackwater wetland in the country right here in Georgia. You can safely take ranger-led tours. You, you stay at Stephen Foster State Park. Um, they have... Uh, pontoon boat tours when you mm-hmm. go out with a park ranger and and yes look for alligators um they're they're really you leave them alone they'll leave you alone uh, not um, always kim <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's um it's definitely it's 
very, um, you feel like you're stepping way back in Mm -hmm. time for sure. Um, You might see black bear, you might see otter, you might see owls, great birding. And um, it's just a beautiful place to be. Plus it's got international dark sky designation. Mm -hmm. Some of the darkest skies in the country. Great for looking at the Milky Way. It is a beautiful place. I can deal with the otters. (laughs) I can deal with the owls. I'm just going to tell you. I yeah. do not mess with gators, and and I have mentioned this fact before. It is estimated there are ten thousand to fifteen thousand gators living in the Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge. I'm just saying that. So, yes. this uh, is true. You you will probably that that's I think one of the reasons people go is they like that excitement <laughs> of seeing the alligators. But just you know, keep your distance. Keep your distance. And finally, as we wrap up, Kim, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your favorite state park here? That, that's like asking a parent, what's your favorite child? Uh, it depends on time of year and what you're doing. I really love George L. Smith State Park, which is in southeast Georgia. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in this quiet, it's in between Macon and Savannah, and it has a mill pond filled with cypress trees and Spanish moss, and you can camp right next to the water's edge and put your kayak in and just spend the whole day just in quiet reflection. It's absolutely beautiful. As I always like to say, this has been such a public radio segment, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Kim Hatcher, Public Affairs Coordinator for the Georgia Department of Natural Resources, talking about there is still a lot to do at our state parks and historic sites as you all celebrate 90 years. Come a long way from those first two back in 1931, Kim. That's true. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kim. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can always let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other program that you heard. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Do not send me emails about the alligators. I do love them, but let them stay where they're supposed to be. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.